lightning. Inspirational. Inspirational. Powerfully refining. Powerfully refining. And unapologetically controversial. Conversations with the Royal Impress. The entire world knows the secret of who you are. Now is the time to step into your queendom and become the Royal Empress that you're meant to be. One woman at a time. Conversations with the Royal Empress. Now Akima, she's the analytical Empress. Akima, she's the Empress that will challenge you. Now, straighten up your crown and be elevated through conversation. Conversation with the Royal Empress. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with the Royal Empress. This is Akila. And joining me is my fellow co-host, Dr. Hakima. Hey. And this week's special guest co-host is Keisha Varnell. Welcome to the show, Keisha. Thank you. Last episode, we spoke with a domestic violence survivor, Shaharia Johnson. And to kind of dovetail off of that conversation, we are going to talk with social justice advocate, Keisha Varnell, social ad- justice advocacy, who fights for the women and children. So just briefly about Keisha. Keisha Varnell is the director of program operations at Methodist Children Homes of Mississippi. She is responsible for the management, vision, and operations in core ministry programs, such as therapeutic group homes, therapeutic foster care, and youth adolescent community mental health programs. In addition to working to bring hope to hurting children, Keisha is an advocate for social justice for women. She's a member of the Mississippi Council on Human Trafficking, FBI Civil Rights Task Force, and her community organizations empowering women. Welcome again, Keisha. Thank you, thank you. That's a lot of stuff that you're doing. Can you just kind of, in your own words, who is Keisha Varnell? What are you doing? What is social justice advocacy? Well, Keisha Varnell, uh, for one, is a feminist. I believe that the disparities of women, particularly African-American women and children, um, does not get enough attention and is not highlighted enough in our communities. And we are losing the moral fabric of our communities for those very reasons. So my primary goal or I would say my primary purpose or passion is to just make sure that we have a voice and to make sure we're filling in the gaps where the gaps are missing injustice and equality for women and children, especially women and children of color. Thank you. I appreciate that. Why do you, and you, you kind of pointed out, but why do you think that, um, advocacy is needed like in why do we need advocacy what what's going on we need advocacy because uh, people don't know and i'll i make reference to women of color again we don't know what we don't know 
we think that uh, for one, there's a stigma and trust issues with police. So we're very apprehensive about reporting certain crimes, especially when it's uh, domestic violence, dating violence, or sexual assault. And now, of course, we have a culture of human trafficking. So we have a culture where Black people don't trust the police. Not only do we not trust the police, we're not very well versed in our laws and how they work for us as opposed to against us. And so advocacy means that someone comes up and talks and speaks for people who can't speak for themselves or have a voice for themselves. And then, of course, there are the ones who are just fearful. They're silent because they're afraid of what could happen if they speak out. So we try to create a space that is safe and inviting for disclosures, for support, and uh, definitely for emotional support. Because what we find in advocacy is a lot of people, once the police report is filed, they think that it's over, but they're not um, tuning in on the trauma, the economic impact of what has happened, uh, the possibility of a victim having to return to her abuser, the possibility of a child victim actually living with their abusers. So it's important to have people in place that can identify those nuances and address them in a manner that's courageous and empowering for other people. Talk a little bit more about the, the people that, the, the, what's in place for them. Okay, well from start to finish, if a victim, and, and this could be sexual assault or dating violence or even human trafficking, of course you have advocates, you have therapists, you have police officers. We have people that are identified as victims advocates that work in police departments and sheriff departments that kind of navigates uh, victims or complainants through the process. Then you have the judges um, and the court system and the judicial system as a whole. That's, that's really the, <laughs> the root of all evil um, that's supposed to support victims. And so going through that process, it could be tedious, it could be hard. And if they don't know how to navigate through that system, it definitely can be discouraging. You have, uh, unfortunate, unfortunately, you have biases um, and things that, what I would say, create barriers for women or any victims to complete the process. Um, we're now putting laws in place or there are laws in place where if a person can prove that they've been abused then of course um, the state files the charges as opposed to the victim and it takes the burden off the victim so just little things like that uh, we're learning making a big difference and making sure there's follow-through you you mentioned um since you mentioned the re the different agencies or entities that uh, will be of assistance in the mm -hmm. community. I also want to add parole agencies as well to parole agents. Uh, I have a relationship with parole agents and a big part of what many of them do, they work both sides of the fence, so to speak. And I, what I mean by that is dealing with those who have been convicted of things, but also dealing with the victims as well. So they're kind of like in the middle and also dealing with the families. So they have a whole lot of connections as far as different 
um, agencies that will assist victims, assist those who need assistance. Because oftentimes where things can start can be from the family of those uh, people who who need who need help or need guidance um, before they actually go out and do things. So I just want right. to add that that agency as well. Uh, another thing I wanted to uh, ask you about too, because as we talk about, as you mentioned, how in the community um, situations is concerning uh, women are overlooked. It's not as it's not considered primary. Um, and many of the people who are advocates you here are women. How, how, in your experience, um, how much of that have you seen to be advocacy that has been led by men or male organizations? Because what is missing is that charge of our men supporting it. But what have you seen on your end in your experience? Absolutely. Um, there's one, well, actually two. The Date Safe Project is male-led, and there's a strong mm. presence of uh, men in that the, uh, in that field that advocates against teen dating violence more so mm. than adult violence because what they're doing is trying to stop it where it starts. And also, Men Can Stop Rape is a male-led advocacy group that uh, put men on the forefront. And Tony Porter is a big advocate against violence against women. And he does uh, TED Talks presentations about the male guys. And basically, he frames it around men are taught from early ages to devalue women and kind of play out or live out in their masculinity as opposed to their emotions. And he tries to get men to balance their masculinity and their emotions and not because he gives an example that hits close to home um, when a guy's playing football and he falls or hurt himself so he throws a ball and they say well you throwing like a girl and that sounds innocent however men are learning at that point to devalue uh, women so he tried to get people to think outside of the box and kind of put things in perspective like that. And he, I mean, that's an awesome, awesome advocate. <laughs> and I think that's the, those are the only three that I know that like a strong male presence and male lead. That is awesome. I, I, I'm always in these uh, debates with men and we talk about these issues and I challenge them. I'm like, don't say you don't agree with it. What are you doing to support hey. What are you doing on your end? What male energy are you bringing for the resolution of this problem? Because the, it takes an entire community to stop this. So we do need the contribution of everyone in our community. So I, I'm so glad that you were able to share those experiences. And hopefully our male listeners who are listening will be inspired to contact those organizations and or even start their own organization or reach out to those organizations that are already making this fight and say, hey, I care too. I have wife, I have a sister, I have daughters, I have mother. They should be just as upset as we are. It, the mission of, of protecting a woman should not be led by just women alone. Our men should get definitely get involved. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. We say all the time, women can pick out the furniture, but we have to have a man to lift it. Okay, That's okay. Right. <laughs> I love to do the heavy lifting. That's right. <laughs> That is. <laughs> we need those heavy lifters in this movement. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You see with children, what type of abuse are we seeing 
with the children and, and and obviously you manage the the group homes and foster care yes uh with children unfortunately it's all abuse it's a myriad of mostly sexual mm. um, but you have sexual abuse not only outside the home but inside the home with incest molestation um we also see physical abuse uh dating violence so they're they're unfortunately are catching it from all angles emotional and psychological abuse we see a lot of that and uh in our older children and adolescents we're seeing that the trauma from those abuses that happen what we call systemic abuse has never been addressed and it manifests itself into various types of mental illness and it perpetuates whatever violent cycles and whatever uh sexual epithets that they may have and so it's unfortunate i would say in my experience sexual assault or sexual abuse has been the number one um it's it's been a, a combination of all but there's always some underlying sexual abuse in there have you encountered when you see um some of them who who act out sexually against other people are you seeing that there's a history for them absolutely 100 percent. So, so so the perp the one who has been perpetrated on becomes the perpetrator why and 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 i'm assuming that that has something to do with not getting the support absolutely not getting the support and not understanding sexuality what it is and also just um but being a sexual bully you find that most of your bullies in children are the ones who are abused at home in some form or fashion or seeking attention and it's the same thing with that sexual aggression someone has hurt them in some form or fashion and that's pretty much sometimes it's a cry for help and sometimes it's just a matter of acting out that's all they know we know what we know we don't know what we don't know and if they feel like, uh, well, this has happened to me, this is what I have to do to other people. Other people. So, uh, so sexual abuse and sexual exploitation, of course, is something that happens often. It's not reported as much because sometimes it can't be identified as such. Uh, everyone, I tell people, even growing up, everybody had that uncle that you didn't leave the kids with. They never talked about why. But you just, oh, you can't go over Uncle Ray's house by yourself. Or you can't go. And a lot of that has to do with the taboo of especially African-Americans keeping what happens in the home in the home and mm -hmm. not speaking out against it. And because my mom or aunt may have hidden that, I can't identify as a victim or I can't identify that as sexual assault. Or because I was in a situation where I couldn't say no, or I didn't say no. It wasn't actually rape because I didn't say no, not understanding that there are more ways to say no than verbally. Wow. What do we do? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, like, because, again, we do have that, I don't want to call it a code of silence, but that whole thing in our homes where you know what goes on in the house stays in the house or you know how how do we reach people or even and even sometimes you know i don't 
I don't know what the percentage of, of women are that, that are doing these things or are they also being abused in the home? And so therefore they can't protect the children because of whatever's going on with them too. So it's like, it's right. In some cases you do have situations where there's domestic violence in the home and a person is completely helpless and helping their children could be a matter of them being hurt themselves or they're they're living in so much fear that they don't know how to help their children they Mm -hmm. don't want to report it because again we don't trust law enforcement and we have had law enforcement to come to homes and say well if i come back everybody going to going to jail and your child is going into custody who wants that and we we have been taught not to trust the process instead of being taught the process and in a lot of in a lot of situations uh women of color or people of color they don't know the process because it is not an accurate uh statement to say if i come back everybody's going to jail because we all know that any time there's a domestic violence situation there has to be a full investigation done to determine who's the principal aggressor and who goes to jail but we don't know that we don't really read i mean how many of us actually read the law (laughs) so Wow. And I guess that's where advocates come in. Yes. We we look for them. Um, we try to find ways to make it better for us as a whole. And it has to work for everyone, but it starts, I mean, it starts on a legislative and governmental, really federal level. If you have a group of men creating laws of the best interests of women, how's that going to go? Like, you know, so no, we, we have to stand up. We have to go to Washington. Mm. <laughs> we have to be upfront and vocal about our rights as women. You mentioned a, a great point about in our community not trusting the police. And it's very important. I mean, when you build relationships, relationships are relationships. You're not going to trust someone or this person is not going to have you, your best interests at heart if there's no relationship that's formed. And so many, I mean, what people don't understand it, there are so many police departments that have a branch of their police department that focuses on community development. And you never want to wait for something happen to have to deal with the police. You want to have a relationship with them before something happens because it's important for you to get your voice heard or if there are things that are that you see progressing or happening in your community that's where it all begins with those uh community advocate groups that are a part of the police department right i agree definitely i think um with trust in the police again that's Mm -hmm. another systemic problem that goes back Mm -hmm. to that then comes forward uh, to the civil rights movement. Then it comes on even to this century or this, well, the 21st century where we have uh, killings of young black men. And when we see that, or we grew up in a home watching police brutalize our brothers on the street and arrest our black guys for selling crack, but not arresting the guys over in the suburbs for selling powder cocaine 
it's like where's the love or where's the trust for black people so if this is something that i grew up watching of course it could be a form of ptsd so i just don't have any trust in the process and especially if you have police officers who are not trauma informed and don't know how to deal with a person who has had a traumatic experience such as uh, domestic violence or sexual assault and the approach is so abrasive and re-victimizing that they just drop it completely and we find that a lot with our police officers that they almost uh re-trauma where well, they do re-traumatize the victim or mm. re-traumatize the victim in a simple interview and sometimes it's perfectly sometimes it's not but if a young lady was sexually assaulted and the first question she's asked is why were you there at one o'clock in the morning <laughs> why does it i said no but it was one o'clock i said no and we have to be cognizant of those type of questionings and those type of uh again re-traumatizing so a thing that has been helpful is um offering trauma-informed training to police officers mm-hmm. and uh, victim-centered training for detectives or any first responders uh, who will be in direct contact with victims. So the, when you just said the, those uh, services for the police, and that's coming from the community, what, what is that, where is that coming from? It depends. In Jackson, uh, mm-hmm. part of one of the task force that I'm involved in to do mm-hmm. those type of trainings. Okay. And you can reach out to your state coalitions. Uh, every state has a state coalition for sexual assault or state coalition for uh, domestic violence. And in some cases, they're one in the same. But in Mississippi, we have the Mississippi Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and we have the Mississippi Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Those trainings can be offered through those agencies free of charge because it's a resource that we offer to the community. And if they have other advocacy uh, agencies or organizations, they should have trained personnel a lot of times police officers may hire a training officer that is specifically there for the purpose of uh, learning and training other officers who comes in. Would you advise uh, a victim to contact a, a, an advocacy group and actually have an advocate with them when they're being interviewed by the police, if it's possible? I definitely would, and I would uh, even advise to ask the police officer or responding precinct if they have a victim's advocate. Most police officers should have a victim's advocate, and that role of that advocate is to navigate that person through the system and also offer uh, emotional support through that process. So I would definitely uh, encourage anyone to ask for an advocate. I have a question now. What if someone is in a community where their local police does not have that advocacy um, to help them through their process? How, how would you advise them? Um, they, sh- again, reach out to their state coalition. Okay. And the state coalition should have a resource of every agency in that state that offers assistance. Oh, okay. Even if Great it's info. a domestic violence shelter, they don't necessarily have to live in the shelter or go to the shelter to receive those services, shelter services. Now that's something I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know that either. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So a lot of 
just have advocates, uh, victims advocates that will come out and support victims. Wow, that's amazing. Several dollars to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and they need to spend those federal dollars where they need to be spent. Yes. <laughs> yes, as in our community, we don't, um, and, and all the information that you share with us is very pertinent, and I'm sure that a lot of people don't even know, but in our community, we don't make those politicians earn our vote. There's like there are so many avenues uh, where there are services that could be of assistance to us, and we're not utilizing them. We're not really moving through those channels and making these people work for us. We got to do better in that in our community. That's what they are there for. Yes, even when it's time to um, lobby for different laws. There are several domestic violence laws, sexual violence laws, and now human trafficking laws on the books. And no one's ever at the Capitol to talk about how that's going to affect our community if those laws do not pass. So, and that's another role of state coalitions to make sure they are there upfront and personal with legislators, with state representatives, um, with everyone, with the governor talking about how those particular laws would affect our community. You are on um, the Mississippi Council for Human Trafficking? Yes. As well as the FBI um, task force. Right. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of talk about your roles? Like if I, because you're saying that we have these coalitions and, and we can become advocates, how did you, get started with this and what with the Mississippi Council on Human Trafficking they actually reached out to me because of my training in uh, human trafficking uh, it actually started at Jackson State and doing training at other HBCUs and other colleges on how to recognize human trafficking um, from that point they reached out and asked that I join the council and serve on one of the committees as a trainer in which I go around the state and do trainings on human trafficking, how to identify traffickers, how to identify uh, possible victims, and then ways to assist this victims in the event that they're trying to escape that lifestyle. And the same thing with the FBI task force. I used to work with the, one of the coalitions. I worked for the Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And as a result of working with a coalition, I was appointed to the task force and what the FBI task force is, it's a culmination of different agencies, uh, multidisciplinary. We have the Department of Labor, uh, Family Advocate Center, the NAACP, myself, and a couple other groups, the Attorney General's Office, and we meet and we kind of discuss the trends of different uh, activities as it relates to civil rights violations, which are ultimately dating violence, domestic violence, uh, sexual assault, stalking, human trafficking, and things of that nature. The patterns, um, some of the cases that the FBI's are working with across the, across the nation and um, ways to combat the problems where we see an increase in trends or patterns or where we see things decrease and what we can do to better serve the citizens of our state. I have a question. Would you be able to share some pointers with us on, on how 
to um, identify sex traffickers? Absolutely. Uh, with the traffickers, that can be anybody. That could be a pastor, a coach, mm -hmm. a guy in the street. They don't usually fit the, because they're different types. You have your gorilla pimp, your romance pimp. Your, and it's like a, that, that really would be a different uh, podcast <laughs> <laughs> just to identify all the types. Wow. Of but I can definitely say uh, it's a billion dollar plus industry, tax free, and it's uh, what we call a resellable product. So it ranks up there now with gun illegal gun sales. And so when you have that kind of money, your average person, whether it's male or female, that's a pimp, has the potential of making $156,000 a year off of one person. And so they become very creative and innovative in what they look like, what they act like, and where they are, because it's so much money involved. But the um the young ladies or the victims of human trafficking you can identify them uh, basically how they look uh sometimes they have branding tattoos so you can pay attention to branding tattoos uh bruises um where they're staying are they living in and out of hotels or motels or an apartment what they call the stable and sometimes the guys will buy a house what they they call it the trap house or an apartment and you will have up to 10 girls living in these apartments just kind of looking for things like that um the way they dress somebody dressing very provocatively during the day i mean and you may see that anyway but that's just like one of hundreds of signs to look for if you're seeing two people together and she's looking down as opposed to looking ahead or she's walking behind him as opposed to walking with him. Um, it's a rule that a person who's in that lifestyle walks on the outside. So if you see a young lady walking closer to the curb or closer to the street and the guy's walking on the inside, even that's a sign. So there are numerous signs. Like I said, that's a whole session. Oh, yeah. yeah. You got to come back, sis. You yeah. have to come back. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So that we can actually do a whole um, show on human trafficking because that's incredible. Because, you know, we always say as far as that whole walking on the outside, that men know that they're supposed to walk on the outside of the woman and that that, you know, just as a protection and that's the right. main thing to do, but you do see some doing that. That's a sign that she's available. She's on the track. So wow. Wow. Do you do you find though that people who just kind of tying into what we've been talking about, that those who are more prone to become victims of human trafficking, are they typically those who have encountered some type of abuse like they've already been groomed in a way absolutely uh that's the target population the most vulnerable and that could be vulnerable emotionally physically and mentally uh and of course financially they seek and they groom people who they know look for that father figure 
who looks for someone that they feel loves them, who looks for that validation. So mm -hmm. absolutely, if a person already has a systemic trauma from physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, they are the target of a pimp's uh, desire, so to speak, to become trafficked. And they are easy targets because of that emotional instability. I'm almost speechless. Because <laughs> Hakeem shaking her head too. We're just like being really right. blown away. Yeah, like, my head is hurting. My head is hurting with that. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and it starts with our children. And it, unfortunately for us, well, you have two different types. You have, when you talk about human trafficking, of course, you have labor trafficking where they're right. working sex trafficking. And sex trafficking, of course, is um, predominantly in our community. Uh, it, they used to think that it was children being immigrated and shipped across the water, and that happens as well. But our community, because our community is the most uh, unrepresented, unprotected community of all populations so it happens and i'm excited about something we're doing at methodist children home we're actually getting ready to open up what we call a permanency assessment center that's the political name for it, but it's a safe house for children who have been human trafficked well, who have been sex trafficked and exploited so mm -hmm. i'm excited i'm afraid because i know again we're talking about a billion dollar industry and people look for their money and basically that's what's going to happen once we open that center and we're pulling girls off the street out of that lifestyle those pimps are going to look for their money but we're excited to be able to offer that services because right now there are very few states that offer services for minor traffic victims or even housing for minor traffic victims. And usually they are victims who are homeless, who have nowhere to go, nowhere to stay. They may be in state's custody, but they're not placed anywhere. So we're looking to place them 45 to 60 days and find them a treatment plan for permanency. So we're excited about that. It'll be the first and only in the state. Wow. Do you know of any in other states? I've been looking. Hopefully okay. I have a call tomorrow and I will get more information on other states who offer uh, because we just this year passed a bill to protect victims of human trafficking, minor victims, because up until 2020, if a person was arrested for prostitution, even if she was 14, we were arresting 14 year olds for prostitution. And now because the law already states that a person under the age can't give consent if they're under the age of 18 it's automatically considered human trafficking so we needed federal dollars to support those victims so thankfully <laughs> we have it in place now wow i want to talk prevention <laughs> <laughs> and, and and i know that that that, that you know it's there is no one way to do it that that you know one recommendation is not going to to you know there's, there's it's not a panacea but what can we start doing paying attention paying attention and my first and primary thing would say not to be uh, judgmental 
when it comes to like domestic violence because women typically statistically rather leaves a relationship seven times and return before they leave for good and the first thing we tend to do is say well they must like it they keep going back and that's not the case it's just so many other dynamics that plays a part of of that situation so not being judgmental being able to listen knowing where what resources are available and what resources work and just being there as a support not as a judge not as an attorney not as a nurse but an advocate for whomever we're close to that may be going through that and even when we hear sidebar conversations just being not confrontational but corrective just explaining to people you know that's not cool even talking about hitting people and i take the situation with r kelly uh my way of prevention and supporting those victims was to stop listening to his music stop supporting him and uh of course there's a lot that goes into that that was a two-way story some people believe them some people don't but just holding the respondent and the perpetrators accountable we have to start there because if we see a person with a black eye our innate ability to focus on the problem it seems just to go out the window it's almost like what did she do what is she going to do we never ask the question why did he do that and so we need to start holding the uh, respondent more accountable for their actions and put less responsibility on the victim and the complainant because we expect that person to go to the hospital go get treated move out the house go to the shelter still take care of the kids explain to the kids what happened but the respondent is over here scot-free so I think we just need to focus and create a culture where we're putting the responsibility on the perpetrator as opposed to the victim. I mean, this is 2020 and we still yeah. have to fight through the fighting for the value of the woman. And it, it's, yeah. it's, it's so sad. It's so it's sad and disheartening. It just doesn't make sense. And then it's like, like you mentioned, it was one of the points you mentioned earlier about throwing like a girl. And you're right, and I work in corrections. So wow. when I'm interacting with these men, it's like I have to tell them the same tone you use with me, with another man, you can't use that tone with me. You know, right. a lot of these young men, I've, I hear them say I've never heard that before. I've told them you can't talk to me as a woman in an aggressive manner because that startles me. I'm, my nature is different than yours. So, so many, so many men in our community are not really taught the science of a woman. They don't really understand that, that it's okay to be aggressive with a woman. And when you said that, it just made me think about, made me recall some of the experiences that I had. I, one in particular, I was uh, uh, walking with a lieutenant and this young, this young man was yelling. And so she said, slow down. First of all, greet me first. This is a woman, lieutenant. She says, greet me with how you doing, sister, first. Second, why are you loud? Why are you walking up on me? Like in his mind, he was like, well, no, I, I, this is what he's saying. I'm not, no, no, I, I don't mean any harm. So we're both sitting and having a conversation. That's not how you approach a woman. That's not what you, this is not how you talk to a woman. So we are so, even though it's 2020, we are so in the past as far as 
how to properly handle a woman. So we got to go as far back as how to even view a woman and how you should interact with the woman. Absolutely. Before we can, and, and before we can um, fast forward to don't put your hands on a woman. You have so many young men who think that the way I treat another man is the way I should treat another woman. And it's so sad. Yes, that is so correct. And I think as women, we've become okay with mediocre and substandard mm. treatment for so long that it's, it's normal for us. Mm -hmm. But we're afraid to ask for, to be valued. We're afraid to say, no, you're not going to talk to me like that. Or no, I'm not going to accept that. Because the, the fear of being alone, the fear of no one wanting us, and then just the overall value they place on black women we just accept less and we have to change that as well you mentioned r kelly and and you are so right we have to 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 add on to that we have to include the entire rap culture yes um which these young men are, and young women are influenced because i mean like you said it's not just the young men that feel that the woman is not valued it's also the young women you Teach want me going to the challenges you want me going to the challenges <laughs> That, that was my, Keisha, that was my cue to go into the challenge. <laughs> All right, uh, number one, become an advocate for social issues in your community, especially those that are concerning our women. It's important for us to get involved. We get upset about things that's going on in our community, but how's it going to be changed? If we don't get involved to do something, guess what? It's going to remain the same or get worse. So we need to become advocates. Stop complaining and be an advocate. Uh, challenge number two, we traditionally don't trust police. We're going to have to build relationships. I'm sorry. We're going to have to dictate how that relationship go. You got to go knocking on the door and say, hey, we're here to build a relationship. We don't like how this is going. It's very hard for me to harm you if I look at you as another human. But it's easy for me to harm you if I dehumanize you. If I don't have no relationship with you, I don't feel I owe you anything. So when you form a relationship with someone now, there's some accountability that you can require from them. Hey, I want I want accountability. So we need to start forming relationships with the police stations in our community and tell them how this needs to be. We have to take control of that relationship. Number three, as our sister Keisha so eloquently stated, learn your laws. We need to learn our laws. What are we talking about? They can't do that. I cannot stand when people say they can't do that. Well, prove it to me. How you know they can't do it? Did you even right. research the laws? And Keisha, you was talking to me too, because I'll be one of the main people talking about, they can't do that. <laughs> so I tell myself in there, because I have my moments where I say, they can't do that. And then somebody say, oh, I just want you to know, that's the law. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> we have to start studying the laws and know what can and cannot be done in our community. Laws change all the time. So just because you learn them uh, a couple of years ago does not mean that new laws are not being formed. One thing we have to do is change the narrative in our community. It ain't cool disrespecting your woman. We wanted a very, uh, we wanted a, one of the people on the planet who love to disrespect each other, and that's part of our culture. We have to change that. So I challenge us in our community to change the narrative. It ain't cool to disrespect your women. It ain't cool to disrespect yourself. It's not cool to disrespect your men. So the disrespect goes both ways, and we have to change the narrative in our community. So right. those are my challenges. And also, stop listening to all that music and letting it influence you to the point that you can't think for yourself. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we are nearing the end of the show.
Tisha, what would you like to leave our listeners with? I would like to leave the listeners with uh, just the idea of start the conversations, initiate the conversations and create safe spaces for uh, women, children and all populations, because it's not just women and children, but that's my focus, but create safe spaces, uh, create and build trust, create and build relationships and just start talking about it because we know even in the world of social media, that's where it starts. The conversation has to start. And as long as we're being silent, it's not going to help uh, those that need help. So just keep the conversations going, creating the safe spaces and creating those relationships. Thank you. And I did ask you, there were any um, organizations or agencies that you wanted to share with the people that they can contact for any type of assistance, or even if you're available, if you could give us that information. Yes, uh, I would say the National Domestic Violence Center, and that particular resource can give you information to all states. So uh, we want to be completely inclusive So that number is 1-800-799-7233. Again, that's 1-800-799-7233. And that's the National Domestic Violence Center. And they can give you resources to whatever area you're in. First human trafficking, any? 100 number for human trafficking is 1-888-373. 7888 and that's the national human trafficking hotline or you can text 233733 uh text help i'm sorry to 233733 and they will contact you via cell phone thank you so much this this has been such a enlightening and educational um show and so we really appreciate you coming on and um We wanted to bring you back to really go into human trafficking. Of course. Whenever you're ready, just let me know. All right. Thank you again to our listeners, and we will see you, or you'll hear from us next episode. (laughs) Thanks for listening to another episode of Conversations with the Royal Empress. Tune in next week for another enlightening conversation. For more information on the Royal Empress, please visit the website royalempress.org. You can also follow the Royal Empress on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Conversations with the Royal Empress is a subsidiary of the Royal Empress Organization. All rights reserved.